0: All right, so I already said Happy New Year, but I'll say Merry Christmas, because we're still in Christmas too. I remember being very pleased when I learned that the 12 days of Christmas is not just a song, it's a real thing. And so if you are like me and your Christmas tree is still up and you did that by accident, good news, it's supposed to still be up, that's liturgical. We have four more days to celebrate Christmas. But I think that as we approach today's gospel reading, we need to slightly expand our understanding of what it means to celebrate. So we're celebrating Christmas, and that of course includes the merrymaking, the the fun things. But at least in the religious sense, uh, there's more to celebration than just the happy stuff. For Christians, to celebrate something means more like to commemorate it. So that's what we're doing when we celebrate the feasts of the Christian year we are commemorating God's acts in history. We're remembering and contemplating our redemption by entering into, and in some sense, reenacting these pivotal moments of our story. Even the parts of the story that we don't fully understand or find particularly comfortable. Think about the fact that we celebrate the Eucharist, for example. It's a joyous, but it's also a solemn occasion in which we commemorate Christ's passion, his death, and his resurrection. And so in a similar way, to celebrate Christmas means to contemplate the mystery of the incarnation. Now, I emphasize mystery because God with us is a complex gift. It has layers. Uh, It's a gift worth celebrating in the modern sense, right? We should be happy about it, but it's also a gift that surprises and even challenges us. If there's anything we learn from the Christmas stories in the Bible, the first two chapters of Luke, it's, th- it's this. When God comes to live with us, he does so in a way that subverts our expectations. He comes with his own set of values and his own agenda, which disrupt our plans, whether that's our plans for ourselves or even our plans for God. Because let's be honest, we all have them. We all have plans for God, right? Things we hope that he will do or even that we expect him to do. More on that in a bit. But God's pl- activity, his presence among us, challenged those plans. Seth preached on this a few weeks ago when he described God's surprising choice of Mary, a poor girl from a small town, to be his mother, and how this divine annunciation threw her plans into crisis. Her and Joseph's lives were changed forever. Any plans they had for a non complicated story were gone. Then again, on Christmas Sunday, we reflected on God's surprising choice to invite shepherds of all people to attend his birth. Not religious leaders, not political power holders, not people he could, you know, start networking with. Animal keepers, it was unexpected. And I think this surprising nature of God's self-disclosure is really at the heart of Christmas. When God comes to us, he challenges our expectations this happened to me about 10 days ago last Friday. I was off work. I was really excited to settle into the holiday weekend. I had a few last minute Christmas errands to do, but otherwise I was planning to just enjoy our tree. It was all decorated. Um, I, my kids were home. I was planning to have a cozy Christmassy day. But I was sick and uh, it was some kind of respiratory thing, so I had no voice, absolutely no voice. And when I woke up, our power was out so I couldn't cook breakfast or even boil water for coffee, y'all. And about few hours into this cold, dark morning in my home, uh, my six-year-old started sobbing, screaming that his tummy was hurting, I mean, like wailing. And I'd read Madeline, so I'm like, okay, this could be an appendix, we need to go see the doctor. (laughs) After a series of events, uh, my six-year-old was in the ER for the rest of the day until late that night. Thankfully, all he needed was a little Miralax. Lesson learned. It was a comedy of errors, an unfunny comedy of errors. I don't know if you've ever had a day like that. But by about 4 p.m., I was beginning to feel very sorry for myself. Actually, I was well down the road of feeling sorry for myself for how my Christmassy day off was going. And my thoughts were kind of fluctuating between self-pity and prayer. And uh, in that moment, I had the strong impression that actually my challenging day in which nothing was going according to plan was actually perfectly on theme with Christmas because it was a day when God was asking me to let go of my expectations for how everything was supposed to go and instead to look for his coming in the way he chooses to come. He was inviting me to receive the gift of God's presence in my real life, not the life that I wanted to be living. Christmas is the reminder that God gives himself to us, but not on our terms. That he comes not to be our puppet, but to be our Lord. And so the invitation then is to receive him for who he is and to trust him even with our unmet expectations because even when he's doing things differently than we might like, he is still good. He is still God and he is still gift. So that leads us to today's gospel reading. On the second Sunday of Christmas, we meet the boy Jesus in the temple. And maybe to you this feels a bit fast, you know, like wasn't Jesus just born last week? How is he 12 already? But this story belongs to what we call the infancy narratives, which are the early stories in Luke uh, that reveal to us the nature of Jesus' life with his parents when he was being raised. It's our last story in the Gospels about Jesus and his family, and it's the only story in which Jesus himself has a speaking part, so we get to hear from Jesus himself as a child. It's very significant, and what we see is that even at age 12, Jesus is a surprising figure who challenges expectations, and this is notable because he doesn't only offend the usual suspects. This isn't a story about Jesus upsetting the religious leaders, and the Jewish mob, so that will come later. But here, Jesus challenges the people who love him most, his father and his mother. So I wanna look at three ways that Jesus subverts expectations in this story. I realize it's New Year's Day. Some of you were probably up late last night. Um, You might be a little sleepy, so I'm gonna help you, make it easy for you, and tell you my three points right now, if you promise to stay awake for the rest of it. (laughs) So uh, as a boy in the temple, Jesus subverts our expectations about God's timeline, God's priorities, and God's family. First, God's timeline. Most of our thoughts about Jesus uh, center either on his birth or his public ministry when he's an adult. But we rarely reflect on the 30 plus years of relative obscurity and even growth and development that our Lord embraced when he took on flesh. We forget that God so fully committed himself to the historical process that he embodied it. That he was a baby who had to learn how to poop and how to walk and how to speak. You can tell I have a baby at home. That Jesus was a kid whose teeth fell out and who probably wet his bed from time to time or who had nightmares. We forget that Jesus, God incarnate, was a teenager who lived through puberty. Think about that for a minute. Now, if you're living through those years yourself right now, or if you're parenting any of them, uh, they might feel pretty slow to you. And if you were a faithful Jew, desperately waiting for Jeremiah's prophetic words to come to pass, words we heard earlier this morning that were spoken 500 years before the birth of Christ. If you had been watching and waiting for the promised shepherd to come and gather his people out of exile, you might not wanna wait for Jesus to grow up either. You might wanna go ahead and promote him to public ministry at age 12 when he first proves that he has the chops, when he first starts teaching in the temple. We do this all the time in our own way. We get anxious for God to fulfill his promises, so we try to rush him, or we think he needs our help to move things along. We assume that his timeline isn't intentional and that the waiting and the obscurity and the submission of the moment are just throwaway experiences that we can try to escape if we're lucky. But here's the challenge. Jesus doesn't try to escape the waiting. In the temple at age 12, he demonstrates a profound sense of self-awareness about his unique identity and his mission, right? He says, it is necessary for me to be about my father's business. He knows what he's here to do. And at age 12, he demonstrates profound wisdom such that all who heard him were amazed at his understanding, it says in verse verse 47. But then Jesus does this, verse 51. And he went down with his parents and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. Jesus was not in a hurry. Even though he understood his calling, he submitted to time. He committed to growing up in the obscurity of Nazareth. He committed to waiting for the moment appointed by his father, and he submitted to his parents even though he knew he was their Lord. Friends, redemption is always slower than we want it to be, isn't it? We want to be healed now, perfected now. We want justice for our neighbors now. We want to know fully now. And yet, God, in his wisdom, does not honor our timeline. So in our disappointment, and even our frustration, we can learn from the example of Jesus. He also was subject to time, and he trusted the slow work of God on his behalf and on behalf of the world he had come to save. And what I want to say to you this morning, if you are waiting, if you are living with a perceived Dissonance between God's promises and your experience. Don't confuse waiting with failure or rejection. Don't assume God is withholding from you because you're doing something wrong. Instead, trust his timeline even when it challenges yours. Trust his work in and through you, however small or slow it may seem. God's timeline is not our own. Second, God's priorities are not our own. Jesus demonstrates this by subverting his parents' expectations that he would go along with the family travel schedule. So we learn early in the story that when the feast was over, Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem without his parents' knowledge. Now They were likely traveling with a large group, so it's easy to understand how this might have happened. Think of the other Christmas classic, Home Alone. Large family, lots of kids, easy to forget one. I grew up in a family like that. Um, But Jesus was 12 and he was responsible. So Jesus' mother doesn't take the blame for forgetting Jesus. Uh, When she finds him in the temple three days later, she points the finger at him. She says in verse 48, why have you treated us like this? How could you do this to us, Jesus? Now it's worth saying that in the narrative as a whole, Mary and Joseph are really cast in a positive light They're shown here to be a faithful Jewish family. They're making annual pilgrimage to Jerusalem for Passover. This was a trip that Mary technically wasn't even required to take with her male relatives, but here she is, here they all are, and they clearly expect Jesus to be the obedient son he's always been, which is why they're so shocked by his behavior. The point is, these are faithful people. They love Jesus, and Jesus loves them and he still disappoints them. He still subverts their expectations, their program for him. I wonder if in that light you could see yourself in Mary and Joseph's shoes. Have you ever felt this way? Jesus, I've been faithful to you. How could you do this to me? Have you ever wondered aloud or even just subconsciously, Lord, what are you doing? Uh, I'm sure many of you know Tim Keller, he's a very famous pastor in New York City. Uh, He's counseled hundreds of people over the course of many decades in in times of crisis and grief uh, on their deathbed. And in February of 2020, he even wrote a book titled On Death to help people who are grappling with their mortality in view of their faith. One month after his book was published, he was diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer. And he recounts the strangeness of that season because he said that when his diagnosis came through, he actually couldn't believe it. You know, this stuff happens to other people, not me. I'm Tim Keller. He said he couldn't even bring himself to open his own book on death that he had written to help others. He shared all this in an interview for The Atlantic where he said that his primary question uh, in response to his diagnosis was very similar to Mary's and Joseph's. What is God doing to us? Now, your version of this may not be as extreme as a cancer diagnosis. But there might be times or ways in which God has not performed according to your expectations. When he hasn't behaved toward you the way you feel that he should. And sometimes, if we're honest, we feel betrayed when he allows things to happen in our lives that are hard or hurtful. We don't need to be afraid to admit this. Jesus' own mother admits it. Listen again to her words in verse 47. Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. But here's the thing. Jesus loved Mary deeply, but he doesn't apologize for distressing her. His love for her never came with the promise to keep her comfortable at all times. Now, of course, Our feelings and our comfort do matter to God, and Mary herself remains an example of this. When Jesus is hanging on the cross with his dying breaths, he ensures that Mary will be cared for by his friend John. But all throughout the Gospels, beginning right here in Luke chapter two, we see that Jesus' greatest priority is faithfulness to the Father's will, even when it causes offense to the ones he loves even when it costs him his life. And so for those of us who follow Jesus, the invitation is to do the same. It's to hold all other priorities, all other outcomes in submission to the Father's will. It's to learn to pray as Jesus himself prayed in the garden on the night before his death. Lord, if it's possible, take this cup from me. That's where we name our hope, our expectations. Yet not my will, but yours be done. God's priorities are not our own. And we won't always get an explanation for the crosses that he allows us to carry. And I think that's part of what makes it so hard. But the truth is, even if we did get an explanation, it doesn't mean we would understand. Jesus explained to Mary in verse 50, he explained to her why he had to stay in the temple. But their response is, and they did not understand the thing that they spoke to him. Following Jesus will always include an element of mystery, of challenge, but as we learn to submit our expectations to him, we can learn to be faithful, even when we don't understand, and even when we don't like what's happening. Third point, Jesus subverts our expectations about family, his family and ours. Verse 48, Mary emphasizes his human family. She says, Your father and I have been searching for you. To which Jesus responds, Actually, I was doing the will of my father. Jesus' primary allegiance was always to his father in heaven. This means his human parents had the difficult ministry of raising a son who uniquely wasn't theirs. For them, Nazareth was always oriented toward Jerusalem and to the sword that would pierce Mary's own soul. But in doing this, in in letting their son fulfill his calling, Mary and Joseph became part of a new family, a bigger family, and more expansive family, made not of flesh and bone, but of water and spirit, the family of God. We heard a little bit about it in our Ephesians reading. It says, in love he predestined us for adoption as sons, through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will and in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So God's priorities are not our own, but we see here that his priorities do include us. Jesus' exclusive devotion to the Father was always on our behalf. It was so that we could share in his sonship, so that we could sit at his table. Jesus disrupts the family, but he also expands it. In him, we are called sons and daughters of God. And by him, we are made fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters in his family, the church. Here's how Jesus put it in the Gospel of Mark. He said, There was no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold, now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. This is the family that Jesus has come to build. It's the kind that can never be taken away from you because it's given to you by grace. God's family is made up of all kinds of people in all kinds of situations and with all kinds of stories. It subverts the individualistic, insular, nuclear family model that is wreaking havoc on Western culture. God's family subverts at times our own agendas, our own plans for family life and fulfillment. But it grafts us into a larger network of relationships that enable us to survive loneliness and loss, divorce and death, and financial instability. In other words, we need it, and the world needs it. And Jesus has come to make it possible. He has come to make us one family in him. So in closing, what do we do with all this? How do we celebrate God's gift of himself without papering over the challenge that he brings to us? We need to grapple with the implications of Emmanuel, and this is a process that takes time. So I commend to you what Mary did as she watched her son grow, and as she realized by and by the challenge that he would bring to her. Verse 51, she treasured up all these things in her heart. This word to treasure sounds a little bit sentimental to us, but in the Greek it's a bit more active. It means to keep continually, or carefully, to ponder. Keep these things continually in your heart and have a conversation with God about them in the coming year. If if you are a New Year's resolution type, now is the time, and I invite you to resolve to hold your plans and goals loosely as you welcome Christ and his plans for you this year. Let him challenge you, let him surprise you Let him show you the merits of his timeline, his priorities, and his family. This is what it means to celebrate the mystery of the incarnation. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you that you come, that you give yourself so faithfully and freely to us, and that you also give us a helper to understand and to receive and to live in light of this great gift. Thank you for giving us your spirit. And we pray uh, that you would give us courage to receive him now and um, to celebrate, to contemplate, to really grapple with what it is that you have come to be with us. In Jesus' name, amen.